Hello and welcome back to the Stuck In Between podcast. My name is Romy. And I'm Sandhan. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we're joined by Baradham Vidyapati, a volunteer with the Tamil Refugee Council, to discuss the asylum seeker case of the Nadesalingam family in Bilawila. Given the recent turn of events in this case and the extensive media coverage surrounding it, we wanted to explore this story on our podcast by putting in context of the broader attitudes and policies towards immigration in Australia. This conversation is one of many important ones surrounding this topic. We hope that you get as much out of it as we did. Brethren, we really appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast today and shed some light on the broader context around the Biloela family. Before we jump into all of that, could you tell us a bit about yourself and your work with the Tamil Refugee Council? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. I started with Tamil Refugee Council about four years ago. This was when the Nadisling family were already in Mida Detention Centre. It's a, a terrible place where a lot of people are suffering. So while they were in there, obviously they had a bit of press attention, not that much before the big deportation that happened and then that video footage occurred. Um, but so it was a bit before then that I started getting involved. I had heard, you know, about what refugees had been going through broadly, but didn't really know the specifics about Tamil refugees and what was happening back in Elam, as my parents kept me pretty sheltered mm. about that type of stuff. Um, but it was through uh, yeah, going to a lot of rallies in this city that I met uh, Aaron Malvagadam, the founder of TRC, who spoke at a rally, talked about his experience coming and what he experienced in Elam, as well as the plight of refugees broadly here. That really pushed me to get off my butt and stop just posting randomly and you know saying just like general statements about how I wish the world was. But actually getting involved and actually doing something, I think that's a bit of a thing where uh, we can just be a bit stuck and feel a bit helpless, like nothing will ever change. But I know now that you know joining an organisation was the best thing I've ever done because I know you can see the material outcomes for people. And it is really, really hard, but it's the first step in joining mm. forces and getting things done. Love that. Yeah, that's incredible that you actually, you know, exactly like you said, didn't just sit around but did something about your passion and where you really wanted to help people we know that the trc is very much volunteer based so in terms of your role and what you do there i'm assuming you've got your hands in multiple pies um could you describe a little bit about what you do as part of the trc sure i guess uh yeah me specifically i came from an undergrad graphic design so I had that under my belt and that was a skill that I could contribute pretty quickly, just like making mm. posts and stuff like that. I also taught myself filmmaking and that's a passion of mine. So we wanted to do some interviews and testimonials. I started off with that, going to different events. Um, also started learning more, researching, reading, writing. Mm. Um, yeah, just trying to raise attention that way. Uh, in terms of the broader stuff for Tamil Refugee Council, we're not as focused on individual advocacy because we want to do things for the wider community, but that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that we won't spotlight certain refugees that are speaking up and try and get some attention behind them. So that's what we try and do. We try and get media attention on them, try and help them with their cases if possible. You know, it's all volunteer run. So yeah. you know, a lot of the time we can't pay lawyers or can't pay people. So it's really reliant yeah. on tens of different people doing really um can seem really insignificant tasks, but really, really helpful in the long run because most people are working full time. A lot mm. of people have kids. I don't, but 
that obviously makes people's time really, really precious. Um, mm. And so even somebody helping you just for one hour a week is something that's really, really appreciated. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's also a really good reminder that you don't need a degree in law or human rights or international yeah. affairs to be contributing. Even with you, with your graphic design and digital um, experience and education, you're able to take those skills and contribute in any way that you can. So I think mm. that's a really good reminder that you don't need to have extensive experience to bring something to the table to help issues like this. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing you did mention was the media attention that you guys do try to bring upon to such cases. And we know that obviously the Nerissalingam family did get a lot of media attention. Um, So we do want to deep dive in and speak with you about this case in particular. But we do want to start off with providing a little bit of context. And I know that a lot of our listeners have probably heard a lot about this family already. But for anyone not familiar with the Nerissalingam family, they're also known as the Mugup and family Um, and it's by far the most high profile asylum seeker case we've had in Australia over the last few years. So here's a quick rundown on what's been happening. The Tamil family comprises of the father Nades who arrived at Christmas Island on a people smuggler boat in 2012. So he was fleeing Sri Lanka in fear of persecution due to his association with the LTTE separatist group. Priya, the mother of the family, she also arrived by boat in fear of persecution, but she arrived in 2013 in the Cocos Island. Priya and Nadesh didn't know each other prior, but they met in Australia after they were both granted temporary bridging visas. The couple married in 2014 and settled down in the rural Queensland country town, Biloela. They had two children, Kopika, who's now seven, and Tadnika, who just celebrated her fifth birthday. And as a family, they became very proud members of the Biloela community. Fast forward to March 2018, the Australian Border Force raided the Nadesilingam family's home, taking them into custody as their bridging visas had expired. So basically, up until then, the family were allowed to live in Australia while their claim to asylum was being assessed. It was then deemed that the case didn't meet Australia's protection obligations as they were not seen as genuine refugees whose lives would be at risk if they were to return to Sri Lanka. Nades and Priya argued otherwise, and it's been heavily documented by the UN and human rights groups how Tamils in Sri Lanka with similar backgrounds have been treated post-civil conflict. Since then, the family spent time between detention centres, most notably in Christmas Island, which reportedly cost $30 million to reopen and operate, while the only detainees there were the four Nadisalingam family members. They had lengthy and complicated legal battles, both at the federal and high court levels, a deportation attempt which was prevented by an injunction mid-flight, medical emergencies which were completely disregarded and the list goes on but without going into all of the events and details in summary they were put through really inhumane conditions and circumstances while waiting for the outcome of the asylum seeker appeal. And then in June 2021 after the youngest daughter Tadnika was hospitalized with an illness that wasn't treated with attention in the Christmas Island detention center the family were moved to live in community detention in Perth. While all of this had been happening, a team led by locals from Biloela had been actively campaigning to bring the beloved family back home. Then in May this year, following the federal election, the family were granted a bridging visa, allowing them to live in Biloela while working towards a resolution for their immigration status. And on the 10th of June, the family finally made their return. And I think we all remember watching the media coverage around this and the beautiful welcome they received when they did come back to Biloela. 
Now, the government's stance on this case and migration policies is something that we'll circle back to in a bit. But was there anything we missed, Baradun? Yeah, you've pretty much covered most things. I guess also what I would include is the campaign that started from Bilawila obviously spilled out pretty much to every city in Australia. Mm. And I think that consistent pressure is also what helped. You know, the Home to Billow team, obviously, and all the associated organisations, us included, obviously made it a real big point for any refugee rally that was being held that would, you know, touch on the topic of Tamil refugees, if not this family. And I think that can't be discounted because, you know, I went to plenty of rallies with politicians like from the Greens and, and Labor who are obviously being pushed on their position about this family and obviously would speak on this family. So they thought it was politically viable for them to do that mm. because obviously there was enough pressure. And um, I think that that pressure is what really pushed a lot of politicians to actually have like a, a good stance on this because we know previously with lots of other different cases that are, you know, equally as heart-wrenching, equally as morally righteous, the the broad cross-section of politicians and you know, media outlets won't, didn't give that much sympathy to, mm. to those types of people as well. We'll circle back to a few of the things that you mentioned in a little bit, but you were recently in Bellawilla to cover the homecoming of the Nadisalingam family. Tell us a bit about your experience traveling to Bellawilla, your connection to this family, and a little bit about what this rural town is like. Yeah, we, uh, me and Aaron, we went to Brisbane. Um, we were loaned a car by a Tamil refugee uh, who had previously been to Bilu with them as well. Um, we drove from, I think we started at like 4 a.m. seeing all the beautiful sights, even though there's, you know, not too many towns or, you know, people in between. It was really gorgeous seeing, um, yeah, being on country, you know, mm. seeing that specific part of yeah. uh, the country that I hadn't seen before. Yeah. I personally actually didn't know the family before I visited. I went with Aaron as a TRC comrade, um, as I thought that, you know, we could do some, you know, while he's doing some press releases, I can do something else and vice versa. Yeah. yeah, we actually met them on the Thursday night before they actually had that arrival at the airport. And mm-hmm. it was really beautiful and kind of surreal just to meet this family that, you know, I've just seen all these photos a lot and fighting for them on the streets and, and doing things that would name, mention them. Yeah, it was really surreal just to see the family as just like people, you know, they are just people, even though they've got so much media attention on them, you know, constantly from both sides of politics, like their faces are put on TV and stuff like that. And they're kind of, I don't know, sometimes it can be like dehumanizing in that way because you actually don't know, really know how they especially feel. But yeah, just chatting with them normally, seeing the girls, just being able to walk around and joke around and stuff like that is, was really, really beautiful. And it's something I'll carry with me, like, yeah, for a long time, you know, meeting mm-hmm. them, yeah. you know, having just some casual meals with um, the whole Bilawila community and different campaigners and stuff like, yeah, that was a really terrific experience. And um, yeah, I was a bit nervous beforehand because I wasn't sure that I was actually going to do the press conference. I thought Aaron was going to do it. But then last minute, um, we decided to switch it to me so he could focus on taking some videos and stuff like that. So yeah. um, that was quite nerve wracking. Um, I told my parents, obviously, I was like, I might be on TV. <laughs> um, <laughs> so they tuned into ABC. I think they caught that, and some of my relatives from overseas were watching the stream, even without knowing that I was there. Um, so that was really nice. Um, you know, we've got to try and use our voice as much as we can while we have it. You know, because a lot of people um, don't have that opportunity to do that mm, without yeah. some horrible things happening to them. 
Exactly. And again, going out of your way on top of everything else that you're doing to help these people. I know you said you're probably lower down on the rung of of um, those who have helped this family, but you know, you're still there and it's, it's amazing the work that you guys have been doing. Um, I guess taking a step back and looking more broadly, given there has been so much covered about the Nadesa Lincoln family in the media recently, we wanted to speak with you as an expert on how this story fits in with Australia's broader immigration policies. And you mentioned this before as well, that there are so many immigrant and refugee families who've had similar experiences and struggles when it comes to migrating to Australia. But why did this particular family command so much attention in the Australian media and public eye, do you think? Yeah, the key thing is really the Biloela community and Mm. um, the narrative generated in that way, you know, that it was a town coming together that really had close connections with this family and were willing to speak up about it and really put themselves on the forefront of a campaign to do that. You know, it's not very often that you see like a country town coming behind a refugee family. I'm not sure that's ever been done before because, yeah, yeah, there is a lot of exploitation in general about how refugees are kind of shuttled across and the things that work better for their cases in working in regional places. So, you know, often uh, just from my general experience, I feel like uh, refugees aren't really, um, they're not treated like real human beings, you know, they're just treated like, the extra hand of work that you, you know you can probably underpay a bit mm. um you kind of ignore make some jokes about and they're not part of the community at all um so yeah i think that yeah being integrated with the community at least having some friends that's the key thing that's connections right rather than just saying we're just going to fight for this stranger it's actually we know this person yeah. what would you do for your friend i think that really cuts through um and obviously the fact that they had children that were born here as well also help the narrative in certain ways yeah yeah and I think it goes back again to the humanizing of these people right I think there's often that negative narrative like you said about refugees and asylum seekers but until you actually get to know them and spend time with them you realize they are just humans and I think it's something as simple as that that can really help more broadly bring more positive light towards people in these circumstances, which is exactly, I think, what had happened in the Billa Wheeler case, like you said. Yeah, and it's also, again, a good reminder of the power that we have when we come together behind a particular cause, you know, being able to convince the government to change their stance on immigration policy by listening to the voices of these people from a small rural country town um, and having a country get behind that as well. I think it's really wholesome to, mm. to see the impact of everything that they've done. There's obviously a lot of fanfare surrounding the Nadesalingam family's return to Bilawila, which would be so overwhelming for the family on top of everything else that they've been through. Could you tell us a bit about what the last few months have been like for them and how it might differ from what the average refugee family might experience? I think they were obviously quite worried with the election, given that you know, Scott Morrison and Dutton had very strong stances about you know not making any allowances, not doing anything, allowing the courts to make their decision and just relying on that. So obviously it was a big relief for them as Labor generally had committed to allowing the family to return, which you know we welcome because you know they are back home in Bilwila, they're not on permanent protection though, which is a demand that we had. Um, And also Labor, you know, they said that they're only making an allowance for this family. 
So the immigration and border policy is nearly indistinguishable from the Liberals as well. Um, As you were asking about how maybe the family's experience would differ, yeah, I guess I'd say, you know, generally just on an empathy level, um, yeah, just general white Australia, it can be, uh, it's an uphill battle getting um, often the more reactionary side to be empathetic or in general um, care about people. I think, you know, given that that is something family had two young girls, you know, I'm sure you could elaborate on that or everybody kind of knows what that is about. You know, if there was two young boys, possibly the narrative would have been shifted different as well. It doesn't have that maybe cutesy flair that some of the branding used and stuff like that. I don't think that's a bad strategy at all, but obviously I think that every kid, no matter what their gender, should be focused Mm. on. It doesn't matter whether they did have any kids at all. Um, you know, that's what TRC is really fighting for because there's lots of single people, not just families. And when you're just focusing on families, that really does a disservice to the whole refugee struggle in general because, yeah, there are so many uh, people that don't have their families here that, you know, are looking at this family's case with, um, you know, some hesitation because there's so much focus just on families and how they work and securing the freedom of families. But what about people that, aren't the most photogenic, don't have the best stories, perhaps you could say uh, aren't the perfect model minority or model refugee. Um, You know, they're put on the lower rung and scrutinised more, you know, Um, even though anybody um, is deserving of, you know, seeking sanctuary, that's a human right that the UN says that we all have, but yet the Australian government doesn't actually fulfil its obligations in that regard. I think you just touched on this a little bit as well, but we spoke previously on our podcast about the difference between a refugee, an asylum seeker and an immigrant and the different reasons that might drive their decision to leave their homelands and the hurdles they each would face when resettling into a new country or a foreign land. In what ways, if any, has this family been used by the government to spin the story about Australia's handling of refugees and border protection? I think they've they've obviously noticed that there's so much power and so much support behind the family that they have to talk about it. They can't just ignore it. Like still when, you know, the Liberals were in power, the immigration ministers, they play hot potato and get switched every now and then. But like, you know, Karen Andrews was constantly pestered at different press releases unrelated to the Nadazalingan family and asked what's happening with them. You know, so uh, they always had to make their positions be heard. Um, I guess, uh, you know, they kind of would note that it's like a bit of an aberration, any of the mistreatment that's happening, especially to the kids. Um, you know, when Tharanika had like her teeth issue, the, the Liberals were kind of brushing that out of the rug, whereas we know that the condition for children or just adults in general create significant health impacts, mm-hmm. not just physical, but mental you know, we had the medivac refugees brought from Manus and Nauru to Melbourne who were locked up in the park prison just in, you know, near the CBD. And, um, you know, they still haven't been given the adequate medical care that they required, even though they were brought here on the premise that they would be medically treated, you know, um, physical um, and mental rehabilitation. But I have many friends that were released from Park Prison that are still on bridging visas and also have received barely any support, monetary or accommodation, despite, you know, enduring 10 years of torture. Yeah, so I guess it's not an aberration um, 
the torture that's inflicted on people and the physical and, and mental suffering that comes with it. Yeah, and Priya Nadez has spoken about her experience living in the detention centres that you just mentioned. The lack of healthy foods, the lack of medical attention, the really restrictive conditions, and she's even hinted at the abuse from the detention centre offices that she's witnessed and faced. What do detention centres actually look like in Australia? How do they work? What are the conditions like? Under what circumstances would people find themselves there? It'd be good to get a bit of a picture of these, I guess, prisons that we don't really have a window into, generally speaking. It's a bit of a hard one to uh, describe in a nutshell, I guess. From my experience, I've been to to MITRE once, or to visit once. I've been uh, outside several times with anti-deportation actions. But the experience of refugees, what they talk about is, you know, there's a lot of isolation. Um, the quality of food that they're given is really, really poor in general. Um, the way Serco security treat people inside there is really, really inhumane. They'll take really any chance to be more physical with people, even though they're, they're not resisting um even though they're not being violent outwardly to people they're just saying like i don't want to do a specific thing or and stuff like that yeah it can be really horrifying hearing some of the stories that people will tell you just how um they're just not treated like human beings at all they're treated like Mm -hmm. they've committed crimes even though a lot of them have been found valid refugees but they're still in the court system Uh, a lot of it is very very arbitrary um, we had a Tamil refugee friend of ours who was locked up for over 11 years at the very end, but it was halfway through that he was found to be uh, considered to be a refugee. But because of ASIO and a bit of rigmarole that sometimes goes over my head as well, it was just delayed for years. And that stuff is what makes people languish in those detention centres and perhaps the common understanding for people that aren't involved in, in refugee uh, activism at all is that people had to have committed a crime to be in there, whereas that's not the case. Yeah, it's like you're leaving your homeland to escape some really horrific things to find yourself in another horrific situation in a different kind of way. And it's really scary and disheartening to think that a country as progressive in air quotes, as Australia, would be putting people through such horrific conditions. We wanted to talk a little bit about Danica and Gopika, the daughters of the Nadasilingam family. They've obviously lived through such traumatic lives thus far, spending a lot of the early stages of their life in detention centres and being in the spotlight of the media. Someone I know who was at Danica's recent birthday celebrations in Billo was telling me about how they noticed that the joy on the children's faces and in their eyes running around freely on the grass and in the open air seemed like such like a new and foreign thing to them and how having camera crews and strangers at something as precious as a fifth birthday party would be so intense for anyone, let alone children who've had their innocence stripped away from them with everything that they've been through. With your experience working in this space, could you share a little bit about the trauma that they and other young people who go through the immigration process in Australia as refugees confront? Sure. I'd say that they're going to be affected for the rest of their lives. I don't think we can judge right now how they're going to live their entire lives, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I work with a fair amount of children and I don't know, perhaps I'm reading too much into it, but when you talk to the girls, you can see that obviously that they have experienced traumatic incidents 
that would make them wary of strangers even more so than any general child would mm. or certain mm. things you can see when they're playing and whatnot. Um, and, yeah, I don't want to speak too much about exactly those things, but, you know, they're definitely affected and we don't know the ramifications of, of what will happen. Like, you know, yeah. it's, I don't think there's been many studies about how refugee detention affects children and the ongoing effects because they're basically in prison mm. and experiencing all these really um, sharp moments that have been um, put on TV a lot. I'm I'm quite sure that um, Priyaka and Nadezana would try and keep those clips away from the kids as much as possible. But, you know, for us, we've mm. just general people, we've watched all these clips on the news constantly. And obviously we feel horrible uh, watching those things, but imagine experiencing that at, at such a young age and who knows what things remind them or will take them back to, yeah, the horrible things that they've endured, you know, yeah. just seeing injustice right in front of their eyes where they've just been pulled away from their parents or, you know, seeing their, their amma being hurt. Um, that's really, really hurtful stuff. And, you know, my position is um, that the government that actually committed this torture, there should be some responsibility for them, uh, not just for this family, but for everybody that's, you know, been caught under bureaucracy and just uh, been inflicted with so much torture. I feel like there needs to be some ramifications for that you know the people that were released from the park prison they were given usually five days accommodation 300 bucks so it was up to grassroots organizations based around here to get them you know living alive um but you know their, their work rights were um could be minimal and it's like a lot of people were wary of hiring refugees that only have like six month bridging visas mm. and so yeah the government just relinquishes all all responsibility which i find um yeah really inhumane and just disgusting honestly that they can just let people languish in that that way you know they've experienced all this torture and then they just kick them out and just go okay make your own way that's really frustrating when um yeah when the government is spending all this money on submarines and fighter jets and all this warmongering and you know people that have gone through torture here there's obviously a big right-wing agenda that's saying that they're stealing all this money. And it's like, what are you talking about? They're barely getting any resources or benefits. Yeah. Can we use that money um, a bit more effectively to help people? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess when it comes to the precedent that this particular case has set, in your eyes, do you see the success, I guess, in air quotes, of the Nadeslingham family encourage more refugees to flee their home by, I guess, unlawful or dangerous means to seek refuge in places like Australia? I know, you know, Peter Dutton's claims that not deporting the Nadeslingham family would give that precedent to encourage more refugees to jump on boats. Do you think claims like that hold merit? Well, I think it's um, a big misconception that the boats ever stopped. Mm. Because just Mm. because Australia doesn't intercept the boats doesn't mean that other people aren't. Um, you know, Australia has a very cozy relationship with Sri Lanka and their Navy stopped tons and tons of boats, um, even at the times where, you, where they're saying that, yeah, there are no more boats because um, it's very easy just to not, not have that come to light when another government that they're associated with is actually turning people back anyway. So people are still fleeing anyway. Like you can't, you know, when you talk to people and they tell you their reasons for leaving, it's not going to be predicated just on one person's case or Mm. that yeah one person was given safety 
um, they're, they're balancing all those things. They're risking their life at sea. You know, they're spending significant money. They're putting the lives of their loved ones at risk as well, mm. all in the hopes that they'll somehow be able to get further than that because they think that the alternative is worse than that. Yeah. So, yeah, that they generally haven't stopped. Um, the numbers are really hard to find, obviously, because Border Force's numbers might not accurately display. They'll yeah. consider certain parameters for boat turnbacks and then the ones that don't fall under that, they'll obviously won't be recorded. So, mm. yeah, we all know Peter Dutton is pretty inhumane and says a lot of awful things. You know, he called the girls anchor babies, mm. you know, like stuff like that, that vitriol, like it really needs to be stamped out. And I'm ashamed that it's, you know, as part of this country, but it's not a surprise given like, you know, the founding of this country and also just like how we, how it is mm. now. Um, I don't think too much has changed as well. But, you know, how far some people will go just to dehumanise even children, you know, that really needs to um, have a bit of reflection from people that would support him and his party in any way. Yeah, for sure. I remember back in school, um, this guy came up to me and said, you know, so then you're going to do really well in the swimming carnival. And I was like, wait, why? And he goes, yeah, because no, you people are boat people, right? Oh my and God. I remember thinking, you know, you guys think about all of this stuff in terms of numbers and headlines. If you think about it in context, like you described, for someone to put themselves in a position where they are risking their lives in such horrific way, you're in, in a boat with very little infrastructure traveling halfway across the world. Think about what would push someone to make that decision, right? Mm -hmm. And think about what they would have experienced as the trade-off, as you mentioned, as this outcome of me putting my life on risk to try escape is actually better than me staying. And when you put it in context like that, I think you can start to humanise why there are so many boats coming to Australia, especially in that time. Um, a member of my extended family who works as a translator was recently asked to travel out to Christmas Island quite urgently. And there's a sentiment that this is because there are more and more boats coming, which is being swept under the rug from being covered in the media. What are you seeing and hearing with regards to this well, given the economic crisis going on in Sri Lanka, yeah, it's not surprising that there are boats continuing to come. Yeah, I don't want to say more or less. Um, but yeah, that economic crisis is obviously, yeah, really, really damaging people. Um, you know, people are queuing up for kilometres just to get fuel, you know, lack of um, adequate food and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, there's a strong movement to uh, kick out the president, Godabaya, who, you know, was defence minister during the culmination of genocide in 2009, the one that's still ongoing. Um, so there, there are a lot of people that I guess uh, politically, you, you know, could be fleeing as well based on the conditions and seeing whether or not it's tenable to stay there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I wouldn't, I guess, yeah, it's hard to say whether it's more or less. You know, people have constantly been fleeing. There's so many different factors that get people to um, take the uh, step to get on boats and risk their safety for a better life. Mm. I'm hoping that, you know, I generally don't want to see any boats because that's obviously people risking their life. You'd like to have safe ways for them to be granted refugee status and quick ways for that. But the, the reality is the process is not quick. It's not humane. Um, and so people see that they're only um, opportunity or the best course of action, which is um, you know, really, really horrible that that's the best scenario in their eyes. They must be fleeing some pretty horrible stuff for that to be something that they're actually going to be committed to. 
And yeah, it's not just a cakewalk saying you're a boat person, you've done this, Mm. you know. Yeah, I guess it's kind of um, destigmatizing what it means to be a boat person and the reasons that drive someone to make that decision as well. Um, The Tamil Refugee Council recently wrote about an asylum seeker case which isn't getting any attention, calling out the government who may use things like their Prime Minister's recent visit to the Nadi Salingam family more as like a public relations display while still having many other equally deserving families living under similar circumstances. Can you shed some light on how big the issue actually is and what's not being discussed in the public space? Yeah, a lot of people um, had come at that time where uh, Priyaka and Adesana did come as well. And so their cases are kind of like languishing where they haven't been granted permanent protection and they get handed out deportation notices. And that's happening more and more. Um, Earlier this year, there was a set of Tamil refugees that were uh, deported. They were picked up from their houses, sent to Maida, to Villawood, and then like we were trying to put out some last minute legal injunctions, but those things didn't seem effective at that time and they were deported back. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people that I meet. I know it's constantly I'm meeting families that are in this situation. Um, so a lot of people have just been kind of enduring this silently and maybe you yeah, haven't reached out to, to different groups to see if they can get help. Um, but yeah. TRC obviously did post about another family. Um, but yeah, I just want to reiterate again that it's not just about the families, it's about everybody, you know, single people, uh, unmarried people, you know, because those are the the people that can get brushed on the rug as well. If, um, you know, we don't just want to set a precedent that it's anybody who has a family can do this. You know, if you've been living here for a significant amount of years and if you're part of the community, you should be able to stay. That mm. should be at least a, a consideration that the government could make that we really want to push them on. That was what... Um, I mentioned in the press conference that I did in Biloela. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you mentioned before that, you know, a lot of these families and people are getting deported back as well. So I guess in terms of the government's position on the issue, how is it being handled more broadly or what's being held under wraps? There's a DFAT report. So it's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. They put out country reports which talk about the safety of uh, minorities or certain people in different countries. So they'll put out a report on basically every country. The ones that I know of is obviously Sri Lanka. Um, So, yeah, a couple of years ago we were reading that and, yeah, their position was that it is safe for tunnels, but that report that they used, I think it was the 2019 report, didn't have any sources, wasn't footnoted at all. And, uh, yeah, we really had issue with the validity of the points they were making, considering we had dozens of reports just offhand that would counteract that perspective mm. that it's just safe for just people to return, uh, especially people that were perceived being complicit or aligned with the Tamil struggle in any way. Um, there's, yeah, excessive torture going on. Um, and there's obviously a lot of stuff that's unreported as well, because mm. it's difficult when you're getting persecuted by the same people that you would have to report it to. It's no wonder that people don't report it because, you know, obviously the government and the army um, want to keep that under wraps. So, mm-hmm. yeah, stuff like that. Um, yeah, sorry. So I guess we're running back to it. Um, yeah, so I had that DFAT report. That's the current report that's out there. Yeah. So, yeah, like in the press conference, we said that we want that to be looked at and, and rectified immediately. So I guess we're hoping for a more 
um, you know, even if you just judge it based on the facts, like we're not asking for them to have sympathy on this cause or anything, even if you just did it by the book, you know, get all these reports, get all this data, mm -hmm. it's really, really clear what is happening, what has happened and what the position of the Australian government should be. So, yeah, I'm hoping that they'll put out something soon, but we're going to keep pressuring them to actually make a choice on where their position is because I guess a lot of people are thinking that um, Labor are, are very considerate and more humane than the Liberals, but we'll actually see whether or not they're actually going to um, stringently go over this report and do their due diligence mm. and make a case for what they think it is because then also we'll see very clearly what they feel on the matter and what they geopolitically want to keep in mind because perhaps you know, that was why Oh, you could, it's obviously lots of reasons, but um, if Australia wants to maintain certain political ties with Sri Lanka, then they're going to be less likely to actually calling out human rights abuses that mm -hmm. are happening in the country. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you'd hope they'd look at all the facts, right? Like you said, it is available elsewhere if they do the digging behind it. Um, we've spoken a little bit throughout about the government and what the government can do when it comes to these situations. But when it comes to everyday Australians, what can we all do to help refugees in need? Not just those of us who maybe know others who've been in those situations or been in those situations ourselves, but just everyday Australians. What can they do to help refugees in need and help shift the narrative when it comes to immigration policies in Australia, but also how refugees are viewed in the broader landscape? I'd say you have to get involved in some way. You have to get involved in an organisation. That's probably the best way to do it because, yeah, I've had some experience doing things in isolation and it's really, really hard because you don't know where to start. Um, but if you think of organization as support, you know, you'll find community in that as well. You know, I've learned so much and made so many good friends, not just in my organization, but, you know, so many refugee organizations that have been fighting for refugee rights, like, for example, like Fight Together for Justice, you know, Socialist Alternative. Um, they've been two key organizations that have shown up a lot at rallies and consistently fight together for justice worked considerably with the people at the park prison they were doing daily protests out there um putting on the pressure of actually showing people actually look in the cbd do you realize in this hotel or oh, they call it a hotel <laughs> that there are people in prison there and they mm -hmm. you know they blacked out the windows and stuff like that to make it harder for the refugees to wave at us you know to dampen their spirits um and yeah, the media here is quite shocking. It was, I mean, shocking in, as in bad. They obviously, mm -hmm. you know, what they focus on is obviously what informs people and people aren't being informed correctly of what's going on uh, rather than just those bad narratives of um, they're stealing people's jobs or they're stealing benefits from you or, you know, all those things that let people, um, you know, divide and rule. It's a strategy that was used. Um, it's been used all over the world. It's one of the reasons why Sri Lanka is the way that it is. It's one of the reasons why this country has a big class divide as well. So, yeah, getting involved, I think, is where you can actually you know, work together in like even one small step. You know, when you make it together, that actually works as part of a greater whole. And like I was saying, when I said I'm like the 10,000th person down on the rung, um, it's because of everybody does small actions um, 
And then there's also organizations that are doing uh, grassroots like support for refugees because there are those gaps. You know, if you can't donate your time, but you can donate a bit of money, look for those smaller ones that are asking for just like small things where they think this refugee needs help paying rent. You know, getting involved with those things and being aware of them. Mm. Uh, I think that's how you kind of build collective power. You kind of start informing yourself more you know, look to an organization so that you're kind of, you're always informed and aware of what's going on at that time and then mm. start building connections and stuff like that. Because that's how, you know, this Bill Wheeler campaign really got off is that so many organizations joined together, like all the huge ones, all the small ones, um, different things that were happening, obviously like different community uh, groups were doing um, information sessions on the mm. plight of refugees in general. So those things can't be discounted as well, you know, like the small you know, the grandmothers for refugees, they're trying to inform communities more about that and obviously putting the practice of, you know, helping your fellow people, um, you know, putting that into action, which I've um, got a lot of respect for and actually trying to help people uh, regardless of what the government is saying is the best thing to do. For sure. I think you raised two really important call outs there for all of us to action on. Um, Firstly, being educated on what the issue is and what's happening that we might not be getting the full details of in the mainstream. And secondly, contributing in any way that you can. Like you said, you don't need to necessarily dedicate your life or have a background in human rights or advocacy uh, to be contributing. It just helping out in any way you can or if you can't even to that extent maybe contributing financially to organizations that can help in that way um Baradhan, thank you so much again for joining us today um, it's been really great to see the positive news when it comes to the nadesa lingam family but like we've discussed there's still so much work to be done when it comes to the rights of asylum seekers and refugees of all backgrounds in australia so mm-hmm. um, really appreciate the work that you're doing and you coming on to share your experience and expertise. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. The stories of refugees and asylum seekers are ones that we want to explore even further in future episodes. And we definitely want to cover experiences of refugees of all backgrounds as well. So make sure to stay tuned for those episodes. And on a lighter note, check out our last episode for a very special announcement regarding a new project that Suck In Between has launched. We'll see you next time. Bye.